Well, I started a series last week on how to know the will of God. And I laid some groundwork last year and a quick review of that. Um, I think we established that God knows all the intimate details of our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows when our first day was, when our last day will be, how many days allotted for us on the earth. He knows, the Bible says, whether we're sitting up or lying down. He knows our thoughts from afar, and he even knows our words before we say them. And the fact that we um, think so much about what does God want me to do? What's his will for my life? Is part of the reason, part of the reason, not the only reason, that I believe that God does have a will for our lives. He does have a purpose because people think about it a lot. Why am I here? What is the meaning? What part do I play? I feel like such a little cog in the universe. What part do I play in the whole? I mean, where does that question come from except from the fact that God has given to all of us a sense of of purpose, a sense of meaning, that there is a will for our lives. There's something that, that we exist for outside of ourselves. We also consider the fact that Jesus, in, in many places in the Gospels, it's there that he was consumed with doing the will of the Father. He was talked about it a lot, and he wanted to do it, he wanted to fulfill it, he wanted to complete the will of the Father. And that, of course, is a model for us. And we even mentioned the fact that frustration sets in when we are not doing what we're designed to do. When we're doing what somebody else wants us to do or what we thought was going to bring us fulfillment and we you know, are headstrong, we go off in that direction, but it's not what God designed us to do. We set ourselves up for frustration. We also mentioned confusion. Confusion sets into all of us when we want to know God's will because God simply doesn't give us a roadmap. He doesn't give us like um, you know, Google Maps or Waze might give us step by step, and you can see every step along the journey. He gives us the destination, and we know where we are right now, but he doesn't show all the steps along the way. And so we get confused and scared and worried and wondering if he, if he really does have a path for us, if it matters, um, because he does not give us a roadmap. Don't expect him to give you a roadmap, but all you'll ever know is the next step in front of you. Past that, you really can't expect that he's going to lay it all out before you. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Um, we're told to trust, of course. Um, I don't know if you saw the signboard outside, but it said, it said something like, do not fear, trust in the Lord. Now, why did I put that up there? Just because everybody is so scared to death about coronavirus. And I didn't want to specifically try to spell it out because I only have 23 letters and spaces per two lines. So, but I'm not going to be really specific here, but I think people are so afraid. They're so scared. And I, for one, don't want to walk in fear. I'm not afraid of the coronavirus. I'm not afraid of, of a plague of coronavirus or anything else because I know where my security is. It's not in this life. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the end. He's already told me. I know it's good. I know he's in control. And so um, as we try to figure out God's will for our lives, we are told to trust. And one of the clearest places that we're told is in Proverbs where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and what? He will direct your steps. We have to start with that lordship of Jesus. That's the trusting him with all of our heart, not leaning um, to our own understanding, not trying to figure it out, not trying to, to um, plot it out or, or figure out how God's going to make it happen. We have to acknowledge him. That's really the lordship thing I, I meant. Acknowledging him is saying, Lord, I want your will more than I want my will. Um, can I just say to you this morning that all too often, we are looking to God to see how, how he can accomplish my will. That is completely backwards. It's not the reason you were, you were conceived in your mother's womb. It wasn't so, you, so God could fulfill your will. Look at it the opposite way, that you exist to fulfill his will. You exist for him. You were created for him. Please don't get it backwards. Where you do have it backwards, swap it around. Um, 
If you have it dead wrong, you've been living for self, change. Change today. Change right now. Live for his glory. Live for his purposes. Live to fulfill his will. Don't look to see how you can use God to accomplish your will. He doesn't exist for you. So enough said on that. Um, Instead of giving us a roadmap, the Lord tells us to put him first in all things, launch out and trust him, and then he will direct our steps. We don't have to doubt. We do not have to doubt that a life that is committed to him, a life that is truly committed to glorifying him, will be led by him. I have absolutely no doubt that if I'm living my life for him and I want to fulfill his will, I am completely convinced that I I will be walking in his will. He will lead my steps. Because it's that simple. It works that way. We miss the will of God when we instead are Lord of our lives. When we want to be in charge, we want to call the shots, we want things to be the way we want to be, we want our life to unfold the way we wanted, we want the plans that we laid when we were 8 years old or 17 or 28, we want our plans, and then we, it's easy to miss the will of God for our lives. I personally have given so much thought over the years to knowing the will of God. Maybe because as a young adult, I was so consumed with it. I was so concerned about getting outside of the will of God. And I so much wanted to be in the will of God, to be doing what he wanted, that I have given this subject an incredible amount of thought since I was probably 23 years old. Thought, um, experience, looking at scripture, hearing other people's stories. Because for me, it's incredibly important that my life is lived for him and not trying to use him to fulfill my purposes. Um, I have a lot of convictions about knowing the will of God that are developed from the Scripture. Um, I can say that they are only confirmed by my experience. I don't look to my experience to give me my doctrine. I hope you don't either. Um, Be wary of pastors where you say, well, the foundation of their sermon is their personal experience. It's fine for personal experience to confirm doctrine. It's fine for it to illustrate doctrine. But this is the place to get what you and I believe. No other place. Not from personal experience. Personal experience is very subjective. It's not a reliable source of information. Just like emotions, for heaven's sakes, are not reliable. God's word is completely reliable. And yet when you develop a doctrine on anything, and most especially here about knowing the will of God, it will be confirmed as you live out your life. And you'll see that it's, it's confirmed. Georgia just said, that's right. She's a little bit older. She's walked through this. I'm standing in front of Mary, whose heart is in the same place, but she hasn't lived it out. She doesn't have the experience to back it up. And yet, Lord willing, if Mary's here 45 years from now, she'll say, that's right. When the pastor says, your experience will bear this out. Um, But it takes a lifetime, doesn't it, to develop these things. It literally takes a lifetime. You don't become a Christian overnight. You're just mature. It takes a lifetime of walking through things, having experiences, being in blitzes, to use the word they used yesterday, and to come out and realize God is faithful, and he does direct us, and we can trust him, and he is good all the time. Let me lead in today by giving you an example Um, Related to how God led Beth and I to become engaged in 1980 and married some months later. And you can see I was very careful. I want you to know my doctrine comes from this, but my experience bears it out. So I'm not basing my sermon on my personal experience, but on God's word. But let me just throw out an example as I did last Sunday. I can say, honestly, to you, to God, that when Beth and I were getting to know each other and getting close that we were both willing to set aside our growing affection, even love for each other, and not get married unless God wanted us to. I can honestly say to you that we were each separately willing to lay that down. If it wasn't what God wanted, each of us was willing, even though it wasn't what we wanted, we were both honestly willing. We weren't playing games with him. 
She was willing to walk away. I was willing to walk away because God's will for our lives was truly, not in words only, but truly that important to us. We both really, really, really wanted God's will for our lives. We both really wanted to be in the middle of God's will for our lives. And I can say that we were both fearful of not being God. We were scared. I was scared that I might make a mistake, that I might step out of his will, and I would get outside of it, and I would make the Lord unhappy. I would take a smile off his face. I'm just, I, don't, I can't answer for Beth this morning, but I can say I was scared of stepping out of the will of God. Um, and because, and I'll say we were scared, I'm sure she would say the same thing, because we were scared that we're going to blow it, we're going to make a mistake here, we're going to move too fast or head off in the wrong direction, because of the fear, we missed some obvious signs that God was giving us that our relationship should head towards marriage. Fear was blinding us to things that other people were seeing because I was so scared, and I think she was scared too. Did that stymie the will of God? Well, since we've been married for 39 years now, you'd have to say, no, it didn't. God used my pastor back then, a man who is now with the Lord, my sister, some of you have met her, some of the weddings our family has had, and a pastor who was in Beth's life back then to simultaneously, without talking to each other, question why we were not taking the next step and getting engaged. And so even though we were too scared, too hesitant, out of fear, it didn't stop God's will. He used people in our lives to approach us and say, are you going to get engaged? Why aren't you engaged? Um, to get us thinking, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe this really could be God's desire for our, our lives. We were not getting neutral input from people who were our rightful spiritual counselors. You know, my pastor, it wasn't like they were ambivalent in the middle. Well, we don't know what you should do. They weren't just staying quiet. We were not getting negative input from any of those people. You know, we weren't getting, you know, you know, the look, well, you know, yeah, that's really a nice girl, but, you know, and you know the negative input you can get, which is a good thing. You know, when you have a friend that loves the Lord and what you're about to do is not right, you want them not to be too, you want them to raise some questions. You want them to let you know that maybe you need to think about this longer and seek the Lord longer. So that's a good thing. That's, I'm not saying it's a negative thing. We were getting positive input about moving towards marriage and even, even prodding from people. And I think of my sister, who my sister never, ever, ever, ever interfered in any relationship I had with a girlfriend, ever. I mean, we didn't do that in my family. You kind of let each other do what they were going to do. But my sister sent me a postcard, and she said, when are you going to propose to Beth? And that really got my attention because my sister did not interfere. It wasn't like they were always talking about relationships and always trying. It wasn't like one of those families. Like My family didn't talk about stuff like this. You made your decision when you wanted to make your decision, and everyone else kept quiet, hands off. And my sister sent a postcard and said, when are you going to propose to Beth? I was like, okay. I got that. And then uh, I was planning a trip at that point to go visit Beth, who was living in a different city than me at that point. And... At the same time, the pastor that she was under said to her, when George comes up next weekend, if he proposes to you, what are you going to say? Now, Beth wasn't expecting me to propose to her. We hadn't talked about that. And yet the Lord put it in his heart to say, if he proposes next weekend, what are you going to say? So she would be open and begin to consider. So my point being that when we are committed, when you are committed to doing the will of God, but you're not sure what it is, you cannot stymie God showing you. Submit your will to him. Trust him with all your heart. Make sure he's the most important thing, more important than what you want to do. And I just don't think you can easily mess it up because of the kind of God he is. He's like, he's like the most loving dad that you could possibly imagine. And he's personal, and he's intimate, and he made you. 
And it's not easy to mess it up when you really want to do as well because of the kind of God that he is. Okay, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, Some of your translations will come through, which is your reasonable worship there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Please note, the, the preface is also that we might be able to discern the will of God. The New Century Version says, Do not change yourselves to be like the people of this world, but be changed within a new way of thinking. Then you'll be able to decide what God wants for you. You will know what is good and pleasing to him and what is perfect. So this scripture reinforces the fact that the Lord would have us to be able to test and discern what the will of God is. Clearly, the Lord has a will, and clearly, from Scripture, He wants us to be able to discern it, to figure it out, that we might be able to walk in it. That New Century Version puts it so simply, that we might be able to decide what God wants for us, that we will know what is good and pleasing to who? To me? To Him. There's that wanting his will more than than ourselves. We will know what is perfect. In other words, we won't just know what is okay, but we'll know what is best, what is the best thing. God does not want us to always feel like we're completely in the dark, though there will be those times. I promise you that. There will be times when Everything is dark. You have no clue. You're not sure what's going on. You're not sure where he went. There will be those times. But he does not want us always to feel that way, to go through life feeling like we're always in pitch black darkness. We have no clue what he's doing, what he's leading for, what purpose is all that. There might be the times, but by and large, he wants us to be able to go through life with a really high degree of confidence that we actually are walking in the will of God. And I base that on Romans 12, 2 that we read. According to this text, what kind of people can test and approve what God's will is? It doesn't say everybody, doesn't say every believer will be able to do that, but it's those who offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. You want to know God's will? Start by offering your body. Offering your, your everything to the Lord. Lay it all down. Put it all on the altar. And then you will be in a position where he can begin to show you what it is that you are to do. Those who do not conform to the way the world works, according to Romans 12, are the ones that will be able to discern the will of the Lord. Those who are having their minds renewed, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, are the ones that will be able to sense the guidance and the direction of the Lord. And not just kind of, you know, pick a shell, any shell. Well, I think I like this shell. I mean, it's not a random thing, but you, you are led. You can feel led. You can feel directed. You can look back and say, whoa, that's amazing what God was doing at that season of my life. I do not want to get sidetracked this morning, but I'm going to for a split second here. I'm reading a book right now that kind of lays what I just said out. Namely, um, it it, it kind of looks at at a believer's life, even a leader's life, and causes you to, to consider seasons in that life and what God was doing. It's really an incredible book. I've just started it. and Some of you know I don't read many books, but this is one I really wanted to read, and I bought it and getting a lot out of it. Um, and part of the thesis of the book is that what God does in the life of a leader actually will follow a very similar paradigm in, in everybody. Um, so you can actually look at, at a paradigm, a pattern, and you'll start to see very similar seasons in, in your life. And 
previous seasons, when you were a kid, your young adult years, when you first were getting involved in ministry, then maybe when you get into the more mature years of ministry, and then the final seasons of your life. And one of the reasons that this has been such a, a fun thing for me to do is because I look over my life at different seasons, and some of them were not pleasant seasons, some were not happy seasons, and yet looking back, it is miraculous to see what God was doing in my heart to prepare me at those times. So enough said on that because I don't want to get sidetracked this morning, but maybe you'll go home and think about the seasons of your life. And what was God doing in, say, between the time you were zero and 20 years old? Looking back, what was he doing? What was he up to in those formative years that form you into the man or woman of God today and, 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 and a leader in some sense? If you're 30, you look back at those years, between 20 and 30, what experiences, what opportunities did I have? What struggles did I have when I suddenly had some responsibility and I had some choices and I blew some of them, but some of them worked out. What was God doing in my heart during that season to prepare me for the next season of my life? So it can be really quite, not just interesting, but movie to be awestruck at God, at what he's doing in your life and my life um, along the way. So anyway, enough said on that. Uh, what does the phrase living sacrifice bring up in your mind? We're told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Andy, what does that bring up in your mind? Uh, burning alive. I know. Yeah, being burned alive, living sacrifice. I think about somebody setting somebody on fire. I think lying on some kind of stone altar, being tied to it so I don't move, and having somebody set fire to me with a torch. And God says, we are to be living sacrifices. See, that's, that's what we mean by death to self. Living for him and not living for self. To use a scriptural analogy, it's to be poured out. And you've heard me say this a lot. Maybe you never know where I get it from. But to be poured out like wine upon the altar. I love that expression because there's it, it a song, an old song about that I learned many years ago that, talks about being poured out like wine. And, but it's such an old song, I didn't want to kind of dig it up this morning unless it just sang an old song. Do you know that song, Karen? Yes, Will you be poured out like wine upon the altar for me? Will you be? And it goes on and on. And I, I think about that song a lot when I have choices to make. And I have a choice between what I want to do and what I think God might be asking me to do. I think, will I be poured out like wine? Or am I going to hold on to my wine? Will I let him burn me alive and there's nothing left? Or will I hold on to my life and preserve my selfish tendency, my selfish desires? We're called, Romans 12, to be a living sacrifice. And when we're willing to be that, then God says, you'll be able to discern what God's will for your life is. You won't feel so much in the dark. It's such a mystery. And how can anybody know? But you'll see yourself led along by the guidance of Almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Um, you might remember the widow of Zarephath, if I'm saying it right, in 1 Kings 17. She used her last flour and oil to make food for Elijah, even though she knew that it's all she and her son had left before they'd die of starvation. And he has the, the nerve, the audacity to say, well, would you make me something, something to eat? And she says, sir, I only have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I was going to make something for me and my son before we die of starvation. And he says, well, I'd like you to make me something. And she does. And the Lord miraculously made it so that her flour and her oil did not run out until the famine was over. See, she was willing to be poured out like wine. Can I tell you we have the same God today? We really, really have the same God. He can make your gas tank not run out. 
It's the same God. Don't think, well, that's a really nice story. I'll read it to my kids tonight. No, we have the same God. He's just as miraculous. He's just as able. He's just as mighty. And he, and he is constantly giving people like us stories, true stories of things he has done in our life that other people say, I'm not so sure it happened that way. But they can't take it away from us, can they, Georgia? They can't take it away. When you know what God did, people can laugh, they can scoff, they can think we're smoking something, but nobody can take away what you know God has done in your life. Don't be afraid to pour out your last flour and oil. Don't be afraid to pour out that carafe of wine upon God's altar when it's all you have. Don't be afraid to let yourself be burned alive. I'm, I'm not saying go, literally set somebody on fire today, but don't be afraid to, to put everything on the altar for his sight. Don't be afraid to do it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That, of course, is a reference to Jesus. He was fully God, also fully man, we know that. And even though he was fully God, he did not think of of the, the rights of divinity as something to be held on to at all costs, at all time, but he's willing, as the scripture says, to make himself nothing. To, to be, that's the incarnation, to be made flesh, to go through the torture, to go through the cross, in order that we might be, be saved. So Jesus is a supreme example to us of one who will make himself nothing, who will become the living sacrifice, who will be poured out like wine upon the altar in order that God might use us God used him for the high purposes of salvation for mankind, for any who will repent and believe. God has high purposes in our lives too, but they will never be achieved as long as we are holding on to our life. Got to pour it out when he asks us to pour it out, and then he begins to unfold. Knowing God's will always begins with a willingness to do it. If you don't remember anything else I said this morning, though I think you will, remember that. Knowing God's will always begins with a willingness to do it. My dear father sometimes would not give me advice when I asked him to because he said, you're not going to follow it anyway. And you have fathers that said that to you. It used to hurt my feelings. I'd go and say, Dad, I need some advice. I'm not going to give it to you. Well, you're my dad. You're my father. Why won't you give it to me? Because you're not going to do it anyway. That lets you know how headstrong I was as a young man. I hope God has changed me. I hope you don't look at me today and say, well, he hasn't changed. Maybe you will. That's okay. God bless you. But as a young you know, teenager growing up with my father, he knew I was stubborn. There's no sense wasting his breath in giving me advice because I wasn't going to do it anyway. Can I tell you God is the same way? If God knows that you're not going to do what he wants you to do anyway, do you think he's going to waste his breath in showing you the path, in giving you direction? I'll save you the trouble thinking. He won't. (laughs) He knows you're so stubborn, you're going to do it your way. He's not going to waste his time directing you and showing you because you have no intention of doing it. So knowing God's will always begins with a willingness to do it. And I think you see that in the story about Beth and me. I really think before God we were willing to do his will more than what we both wanted in our flesh. And I think that opened the door to be able to show us and direct us. And looking back on that, I, I so marvel that he took me from Baltimore, Maryland, and put me together with somebody that could not be more perfect for me as a wife, as a help me, as somebody to serve together in ministry, then to be the mother to our children, to be the grandmother to our kids, then Beth. And yet she's 3,000 miles away. I think only God can do that. 
Yesterday I was texting with her when I was at ISI. I knew what she was working on and, and what she had spent her whole day doing together with you, Sandy Church. And I was, I was praising Beth. I said, you know, Beth, and this is a quick text. I said, 40 years ago I fell in love with you because of your heart, and I'm still in love with your heart. Her heart to serve, her heart to, to not think of herself, but to be doing things for other people, to serve in the church, to love you people. That's what drew me to her those years ago. It wasn't that she was, you know, the cover of a fashion magazine, and man, was she hot. That was not what drew me to her. Of course, I was attracted to her, still am, but that wasn't the essence of my relation. It was like her heart. She wanted to do God's will, but anyway... I'm not trying to talk about us today, but it just kind of comes out. My experience confirms my convictions that the Scripture teaches, and, and hopefully that helps you to hear some of these stories. Um, <clears throat> Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's, anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Jesus is saying, back then, anybody that really wanted to know the will of the Father would know that he was the Messiah. See, it's proof of what I'm saying. If you really want to do God's will, it will unfold in front of you. You can't miss it. It'd be really hard to miss. But if your desire, my desire, isn't really that sold out, I want a little bit of God, a little bit of me, mostly me. God, what do you want me to do? I think the heavens will be kind of brassy. You're not sure, you're confused. Well, God just never gives direction. I'm not sure He has a will for my life. I'm not sure He directly hears my prayers. Maybe you should start with the willingness thing. Get to a point where, Lord, I will do anything, go anywhere, lay down my reputation, spend all my money. I will put everything on the altar. I just have to know what you want my life to be, what you want me to do. Willingness to do God's will also begins with a confidence in his character. Uh, We talk about that a lot in our church because I believe that so many many, um, wrong ideas that believers have are based in wrong ideas about the nature of God. That they don't really know God's character. And so they have a lot of inappropriate, false ideas about what God is like And so it becomes a pretty scary thing to walk with him, to do his will, if you're not sure you can trust him. Now, sadly, um, a lot of times our viewpoints of God come from our viewpoints of our own parents. Now, we all had imperfect parents, we know that. But but for example, um, if you had a, a dad that was anything but a good example of a godly man, a godly father, you probably had got some pretty bad impressions of what God is like because of what your father was like. And you want to correct that. And the only place to correct that is in God's Word because this tell, shows us every page, every single page, it shows you what God is like, what his character is like. So it can clear up all these misconceptions. And we all have them, these wrong ideas, because every page shows us what God is like. All of our sermons in this church, they can probably all be boiled down to, I want you to see what God is like. I want you to see his character. Because when you see his character, it's so much easier to not be so afraid to bow before him, to calm your Lord, to trust him, to trust him in the darkness, to trust him when you're being asked to to be burned alive. You're being asked to pour out your last carafe of wine upon the altar. If we trust God, we will be able to submit our lives to him. If we don't feel like he can be trusted, it'll be impossible for us to submit our lives to him. I mean, who of us can possibly trust someone whose character we don't trust? If we think they might turn around and stab us in the back or have us walk off a cliff in the darkness, you're not going to trust them. 
You won't trust God if you have questions about the goodness of his character. You won't, you won't be able to trust him. You'll think, I need, to, I need to maintain control because I can't really trust this guy. I want you to know God can be trusted. His character is perfect. He's a loving father. He loves you more than anybody else in all the world could ever love you. Don't be afraid. I have a doctor who, as you know, I, I dearly love. In case you know, don't know who he is, his name is Dr. David Engstrom. He works at a Zion Clinic in, in Zion. And I like him uh, for a lot of reasons. One of them is because he takes a very conservative, sensible approach to medicine. So he doesn't do every, you know, order every test that can be ordered. He says, well, George, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't do this. But if I were you, George, I think I would do this. And whatever he says, I follow because I trust him. If he says, you don't need a colonoscopy this year, I don't get one. If he says, but I want you to do this instead, I do it. In fact, I just did. He recommended coligars. Well, you know what that is. He said, I wouldn't get the colonoscopy if I were you. I would do this. He told me why. But whatever he says, if he had said, get a colonoscopy, I would have done it. I hate them. I mean, who, who can, likes the preparation? But if he had said, you need to, I would have done it. Because I trust the man. I trust Dr. Engstrom. If he tells me I should get the shingle shot, I will do it. A few years ago, he said, I wouldn't do it. Now, because they've changed the shot, he said, you know, I think I would get it if I were you. And so I plan to. My point being, because I know his character, I will do whatever he tells me to do. I've never once not done something he told me. Never once have I done something he said, don't do it. Because I trust the man. Andy Opie over here is blind. But he trusts most of the people in this room. And he will follow our lead, won't he? Because he trusts us. He doesn't think we're going to let him walk into traffic. He doesn't think we're going to say there's no steps here when there's a step right in front of him. Because he trusts us. And so he follows. If, if you know, one of us played a practical joke on him and said there's no steps here and he went tumbling down, I dare say he would never trust that person again. <laughs> we let him walk into traffic this morning. I don't think he would ever trust us again. Um, and, and he shouldn't. Um, trust is based on a knowledge of character. <laughs> it might not be here, right? <laughs> Who would you trust with your banking account passwords? Who would you trust with your credit card passwords or your retirement account passwords? You know, not too many people, am I right? I mean, even your closest family usually gets a little bit funny when something like passwords comes up, right? People are... They don't just say, oh, well, it's this. I, I know you're fine with it. It's like people are a little bit funny about that because obviously you're not going to divulge something like that unless you just really know that there's no chance in the universe that someone's going to um, rob you blind. And we go back to Andy with that. Right, Andy? <laughs> Coming full circle here. If we have learned to trust the character of God, we will be able to submit to his will, which means, catch this now, you'll be able to accept it when the answer is no. When he says, no, you can't marry the girl. Or no, I don't want you at that college. Or no, I don't want you to move out of the house. Or no, I don't want you. But you'll also be able to accept the answer yes when he says yes, if you've come to be able to trust his character. We've not been able to find a spouse yet, and we're desperate for marriage. If we've come to know, really know, that God can be trusted, we'll be able to wait. Not because we don't really want to be married, but because we've learned that we can trust God. If we don't think God can be trusted, we just might take matters into our own hands and make a marriage happen. And people do it all the time. Not that hard to make it happen. You decide, well, I'm going to make it happen because God hasn't done it. You can do that. And you can live with the result of that as well. If we cannot trust God, we will not wait for him to change our spouse. Instead, we'll nag them. None of you here nag your spouses. None of you women nag your husbands, do you? Does it ever work out well? Does the husband ever change because you nag them? No. If we can't trust God... When we are attacked, 
you know, a personal attack is made against us, we will attack back instead of trusting that God is able to vindicate us. If we cannot trust God, here's a good one for you, we will have great difficulty tithing because we're afraid. We can't trust him with our money. We're not sure that I can trust that God really will take care of my needs. Now think about that. Tithing means giving to the Lord of our first fruits, and it specifically means giving him 10% of our first fruits, not just a random percentage. Now think about that. If you give to the Lord, this is when it gets quiet in the room, 10% of your gross income every, every two weeks when you get paid or every month when you get whatever it is, and you do that, that means an amount that's before deductions, before taxes are withdrawn, before your retirement, your elective retirement amount. But if we can't really trust God, there is no way on God's green earth we're going to tithe. Right? Because I might not have my needs met. I might not be able to buy food. I might not be able to buy, buy diapers. I might, I might be penniless when I retire. Because the only people that can ever bring themselves to tithe are people that have learned that God can be trusted. Because it's not safe otherwise. Point made. Natural man wants to be in control and is fearful of yielding complete control to God and trusting him. Natural man thinks that if I yield control to God, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to do to me. I don't know how bad my life's going to become. Spiritual man knows that God is completely trustworthy and that he can be trusted with every area of our lives, bar none. How do we build our trust in God? How do you learn to trust anyone? You get to know them. You see how they relate to others. You trust them in small ways, and then you trust them in ever bigger, bigger ways. You build experience with them. That's how you and I learn to trust a person. We don't just trust somebody all at once. We, you get to know them. You see how they relate with people. You trust them in little things. Okay, that worked out well. Maybe I, this person is trustworthy and I can trust them with even more. How do we learn to trust God? Get to know him. You get to know him through his word, the most obvious, through spending time with him in, in prayer, just talking to him, just walking with him, meditating upon him. You see what other people have found out about him. That's why testimony time is so important in our church. I mean, it's why I love that um, Roy Abbott's wife yesterday, Iron Sharpens Iron. When she gets up on the stage and she's kind of tearful and says, I'm so thankful my husband decided to deal with his stuff. See, that, everybody in that room is listening to what she is saying has happened when Jesus entered her marriage. I was impacted, and I don't have a big problem with my marriage, but I, I'm moved. Think about all the people I know that, boy, they need help in their marriage. And I wish they could hear what Roy Abbott's wife said. So, um, <clears throat> begin to, to test the Lord. If you want to grow in, in a knowledge that he is trustworthy, that his character is, can be trusted, begin to step out. Begin to test him. Um, you might not be able to jump in all at once, but you can take a baby step and say, oh, well, he's trustworthy. And then you take a bigger step, and you keep doing that, and you come out on the other side eventually saying, I can trust God implicitly in every season of life, with whatever's going on, with whatever bad report I get, I can trust God. And you become one of those people that others look to and say, how can they trust God so much? Well, it didn't come easy. It didn't come without a, at a price. Knowing and doing the will of God in the big decisions begins with knowing and doing the will of God in the small daily decisions today. And please don't miss that point. Um, if you hope to not miss the big decision five years from now, the best preparation for that is follow the little decisions today. And then you'll set yourself up for those big, life-changing kinds of decisions. I had a dear friend 
named Mark Hedgepath when I was in my early 20s. And some of you know he ultimately was, was shot to death in a park in Philadelphia. And we named our youngest son Mark. Mark's over here. Um, after Mark Hedgepath, uh, when we got the news that Mark and his father had been killed in this park by some shooter, I thought, well, if, if the Lord gives us another child, another son, we will name him Mark. And that's where Mark got his, his name. But I was in a Bible study one night with Mark Hedgepath. I was probably around 22 years old. Mark was the leader. He was younger than me, but boy, he was... I sat at his feet, so to speak, because he had a walk with Jesus that I was, didn't have yet, and I envied it. And we were just having a casual time at a Saturday night Bible study, all young adults, just talking, you know, like you do if you've ever been to that kind of Bible study. And I remember saying to him, I said, or the whole group, I said, you know, I'm not worried about one day dying for Jesus, but I'm struggling with just little decisions every day and doing the right thing. And Mark said, if you're not doing the right thing today and tomorrow, making the right decisions now and the little things, you will never die for him down the road. I never have forgotten that advice, ever. Why would I think I'm going to become a martyr someday for Jesus if I'm not listening and obeying today in those itsy-bitsy choices? Full of myself. That's one of those you know, life-changing things. Mark said it to me. He went to be with the Lord and has continued to resonate in my life and helps me make good decisions every day because I do want to be ready if one day the Lord has me become martyred. I want to be ready. Somebody wants to fire an AK-15 at me or something, unless I deny Christ, I don't want to hesitate. I don't want to flinch. I don't want to think about it and say, well, you know, I love my grandkids. I want to... Follow Jesus wherever that takes me, whatever it costs me. I want to be ready in that moment to follow Jesus. But I won't be ready if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do today. And I'm fooling myself, I think I would be, if I'm disobeying today and tomorrow and this week and next month and last month. I'm just kind of messing around with them, playing around. There's not a chance I won't slide out of becoming a martyr for one day. And justify why in that moment, well, I don't think this is the Lord's will. I think I'll deny Jesus rather than take a bullet or be burned at the stake or some such thing. Knowing God's will begins with obeying in the, the little things. When we think of knowing God's will, we so often think of the big decisions. Well, what job should I take? Where should I go to college? Who should I marry? Um... But the preparation, as we're trying to say, with those, with those big decisions starts with just the little bitty, itty-bitty good decisions today. Um, what we're going to do with our time, who we're going to spend our time with, what's the diet we're going to feed our minds on, um, what words are we going to use. All those itty-bitty decisions all play into helping us make the big decisions down the road. When the major decisions and crossroads come, we don't always have time to consider what to do, right? Um, you don't always have time to stop and pray. You don't always have a week to go approach some friends and say, man, I have this really big decision. I'm not sure what to do. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? I'm thinking of, in particular, Joseph in Potiphar's house. You know, that woman came on to him day after day after day. He was single. He you know, ended up in a foreign country. He's alone. He's a young man. You know what he would love to be able to do. And this woman wants to do it with him. And she every day just saying, go to bed with me. Sleep with me. And he keeps um, saying no. And then one day, she grabs him literally and says, sleep with me. And he went out of her house, ran out of his house. She's left holding his cloak. Now, why could he make that decision in that moment? He's a red-blooded man. Why? Because he had been making all the right decisions leading up to it. So in that moment, he didn't have to say, well, just give me five minutes here. I want to make two lists, pros on this side, cons on this side. Well, he, he didn't have time for that. You and I will not always have the luxury of time to make a good decision. But if all along in all the little areas, you are making good decisions, letting Jesus be Lord, denying your flesh, pouring yourself out, 
then if you face a big decision and a decision we made like this, an ethical decision, a moral decision, you'll make it right. You'll be like Joseph. Here I stand. I believe that. I believe that. You'll be ready. And you won't do something stupid in that moment because you have prepared for that moment. Sum it all up. If we want God's will in our life, first of all, the Lord would have us discern his will. Being able to do his will will start with a willingness to do his will. If you're not willing, he probably ain't going to show it to you. A willingness to do his will begins with a confidence in his character. You've learned that you can trust him. We can develop a heart knowledge of his character, not just from the word of God, though I would always say that's our primary source, but also by taking little faith steps and testing him and realizing, oh, wow, he is trustworthy. He is real. He did know I was on that street corner at that moment. And it builds your experience. It builds your confidence with him. As we learn to discern and do the will of God in small daily ways, we will find ourselves knowing and doing the will of God in big life decisions. Here I stand, I can do no other. I believe with all my heart. So, amen. Let's pray. Lord, I'd love to be able to open up your word and together with your word and, and even the, just the wonderful experiences that you've given my wife and I over the years that have only proven experientially the truth of your precious word. I love being able to share these things with, with um, a congregation and people that are in all, in all different walks or different, all different points in their walk with you. Some of them are, are more mature than I. Some are less mature. Some are um, just still at the baby stage in their, in their walks. But it really is precious to be able to, to share the truths of your word and to share the wonderful things that you do in the lives of your children when they're completely sold out to you. Lord, as I also often say, please help us do these things. It's so easy to go home now and just eat a big dinner and take a nap and forget everything and get occupied until it's time to come back next week. And, and it's just like Jesus said, that it's like the birds there come and they snatch that seed away and it's gone. And it doesn't bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we would like this particular seed to bear fruit in our lives, to change us, to, to develop us as men and women who trust you, who are not afraid of taking faith steps small and big, who are not afraid to, to live for you and not for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.